Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. You join me in a conversation with quite an extraordinary family doctor. Her name is Karen Smith, who has a solo practice in the rural community of Rayford, North Carolina. Recognizing the needs of her patient population reached beyond the exam room, she became involved with North Carolina Academy of Family Physicians, where she subsequently became the president of that organization in 2005. She was recognized as North Carolina Family Physician of the Year in 2016 and American Academy of Family Physician of the Year in 2017. First, I asked her to characterize her current role in her community. I'm a family physician practicing in rural North Carolina, and I have been here for 28 years in the same community. That's an astonishing accomplishment because in the last 10 or 15, maybe 20 years, doctors where I've worked, both in the UK and here in Australia, don't tend to stay in the same community. And we lose a lot of that connection with our people. It is a task. And I think because I've taken the opportunity of maintaining my practice and home as my base, and then I travel all over the world. So what has it been like in the last 28 years in in your community? What changes have you seen? Amazing changes in regard to health care but very little in regard to the people who live here. Healthcare with the introduction of a 11-bed and a 28-bed hospital three years ago. And I started off with myself as a solo physician and two other doctors. Both of those doctors have since um, passed. They are no longer living. And I'm, I'm now the oldest doctor in our community. But I believe the, the health care systems coming into the community, establishing the small hospitals, is, is the major change that I have seen. So really, we're talking about secondary care moving into the primary care world. Certainly where I've worked, it's always been a case of looking after people in an office environment. But increasingly, you're finding that you're working in a, in a small hospital environment. Well, very interesting. I did remind our hospital systems that the primary care office, the family physicians were here many years before they came. And so I attended as many meetings as I could. I sat with their board of directors and emphasized the fact that the patient has the relationship with the physician and not with the hospital. And so even with their philosophy and how care is conducted, it still maintains that physician-patient relationship. And we utilize the hospital for the services, x-ray, the radiology lab, emergency room. And so we utilize those services. We do not have obstetrics. We do not have cardiac care. We don't have anything of that nature. And when patients present to the hospital with those problems, they are immediately transported either 36 miles or 28 miles to the larger mother institution. I remember practicing like this when I first started and started as a family physician. This would have been in Scotland in the 1980s. We were in a rural community. We had a small, we call them cottage hospitals. And our district general hospital was, was 50 miles away. 
And so, as you say, we would transfer patients who became very acutely ill to that hospital, often accompanying the patient in the ambulance, sometimes even resuscitating them en route as we went to uh, the distance to the, the hospital. It was a very different life that I remember. It was, in many ways, not something that I felt could be sustained over a whole career. And yet here you are, having done just that. How did you do it? It is sustained over a whole career and is very interesting because we had a full code in our office about one month ago, um, full cardiac arrest, and we were able to resuscitate and the ambulance arrived and then the patient, of course, was transferred over 36 miles. I believe the fact that I have had an amazing amount of support, um, support from institutions like Duke, UNC Chapel Hill, ECU, as well as the local hospital systems has made a world of difference for allowing us to be uh, where we are and to continue to provide care. Uh, As a matter of fact, I um, was asked to chair the the Scarce Resource Allocations Committee for the state as a result of COVID-19. And I appreciated the fact that they asked me to try to connect them with the other doctors in the community and respected the fact that we would communicate not only with the doctors, the hospital systems, but the associations. And so it's that strong support that I have had that has allowed me to remain here. Was there a price that you feel you've paid personally as a consequence? I mean, you're a solo practitioner or you were a solo practitioner. It can't have been easy being the the only doctor around. I am still a solo physician. I have not joined either of the two systems. I still stand independent. The price, I I believe, has been that of the family, um, sacrificing time with the family, just as my two daughters were on the phone. And so they quickly step up to the plate when they know mom has a task that needs to be accomplished. And so maybe if I had more of that time, but I can tell you The joy of taking our children and traveling to places like Scotland and Egypt and all over the world. Mm. So our children have gained that benefit and that is our family time. But it is hard work and I still work on an average of 10 to 12 hours a day easily. That's an astonishing accomplishment that we can only be in awe of. And I speak as a, a family doctor who's been doing this for nearly 30 years. I absolutely believe other doctors can aspire to this. Hmm. Practicing as an independent solo physician to be that doctor in a community, I, I am so grateful to be the voice of people, everyday living people, and to be able to give their say so. Again, the the scarce resource allocations um, project that we've been working on, we really had to speak out about people who didn't have access to care or the socioeconomic issues, the social determinants of health, and let them know that when our patients came to the hospital, because they weren't there first, that they should have access to the same quality of care and the same resources as every other patient who is already at the hospital. Mm. I can see the advantages from the patient perspective, and I'm trying to understand from your perspective and your family's perspective, the sacrifice that you are making working 10 to 12 hours a day. Do you feel that 
current generation of younger doctors who are coming in have very different expectations from our generation where we actually saw it as a vocation. Doctors don't see it as a vocation anymore, in, in my view. I believe that the generations of physicians who are, are being created today will see the value of the independent doctor. Hmm. COVID-19 has taught us to exhibit that compassion that we had all so desperately wanted to do for years. But because we were in system-type medicine and perhaps the compassionate care that we would like to display, that doesn't produce money and can be costly. Mm -hmm. And so for some doctors, they really weren't encouraged to do that, particularly family physicians. And so now we can show the younger generation, guess what? Patients want compassionate care. They want a doctor who they can communicate with, that they can trust, that will be there. After the patient coded, not only did we meet him at the hospital 36 miles away, but his family was truly appreciative when I walked in the door. And so that's what we're talking about. And a fabulous example. Somebody who might have lost their life had you not been there in that moment to support them. Can you say something about what COVID-19, what does that look like? We here in Australia are looking across at the United States with some concern at the number of cases that you're seeing, at the death rates. How is this all unfolding where you are in North Carolina? In North Carolina, we have had over 2,000 cases um, that were diagnosed. Uh, we have certainly had death as a result of the disease. In my community, I just received our report. We do have 21 active cases. We have had no deaths at this time. The COVID-19 is a scare because it crosses all racial lines, all socioeconomic, all demographics, and no one knows who is the next victim for COVID. The biggest concern that we have for coronavirus is how do we even recognize it? So as a solo physician, I'm in my office. We have implemented telehealth and telephonic um, assessments for our patients. But how do I know about the person who walks in the door and perhaps they're not febrile or not coughing? How do I know if they are a carrier? And so we did have issues with getting our uh, personal protective equipment. We were fortunate in that we did receive the N95 mask on Monday. Um, and so, but all of this time, we were running a risk. And today, I actually had an older patient who came in with a little bit of shortness of breath and a low-grade temperature. And as I was driving home, the only thing I could think, does this lady have COVID-19? Now, I recognize that we were certainly wearing all of our protective gear, but now I have that task of checking on her and monitoring her temperature and staying in contact with the family. So we are concerned. The community that I practice in is one of the most impoverished communities in North Carolina. And I recognize if our patients do come down with the disease, we are really going to see loss of life. And we do have 21 cases and we watch them closely. I can imagine what that must be like seeing a patient and wondering and First of all, I have to comment that you're not getting your PPE until Monday is disgraceful. 
It is a problem. Um, we have worked with some of our larger organizations. So I don't have a face shield. We do have N95s that we distributed. I do have a covering. Unfortunately, it's one of the cloth coverings. And someone suggested that I put a raincoat over that cloth covering and wanted to throw away raincoats. We do have the gloves and we do have the Clorox, but I can tell you we purchased that bleach at a local grocery store. And so when we are completely out of hand sanitizer, we have no more left. So we are we recognize it and, and we know we're working at a disadvantage and at a risk. And it does worry us. And yet when you were talking about COVID, you you saw it as an opportunity for primary care to come into its own. Say a little bit about that. I really feel like that the coronavirus pandemic is an opportunity for primary care. Mm-hmm. And I do base my comments on the compassion. We start with the compassion. How can we now use this pandemic, which has affected us globally, to look at how we are practicing medicine? How can we now look at the inequities that exist and now try to incorporate fairness for all people? And in a country which displays so much wealth, how can we now provide access to care for everyone? The number of deaths that we have seen with the African-American population is clearly a blatant example of what is occurring with health inequities. And so now we can actually see, okay, here it is. We see it. It is taking lives. We need to fix it. We need to really sit down and talk and fix it. Now, I know we have to continue to act swiftly because the virus is here and we want to save lives. We want to save all lives. But what can we do to transform healthcare so that we do not have to face these issues when coronavirus is beyond us, when we're, when we're done with it, when it becomes like the flu and we know what to do? But now is an opportunity to fix healthcare in America. And I guess that from, certainly from a policy perspective, you're right. This is the wake-up call to say, it's not just your neighbor it's your family, it's somebody in your own house, it's somebody that you know and love that is going to be affected by this condition. In the same way that so many of these things are affecting, we we have the equivalent of coronavirus in so many non-communicable chronic illnesses that we are experiencing, diabetes and heart disease and cancer. We already have had the coronavirus equivalent except that this time it's brought it into sharp relief because action is needed now. Exactly. And so coronavirus and its other forms has already been here. And the deaths that we see for heart disease and stroke is a very high number in our community. And diabetes is on the rampage in our community. And unfortunately, um, mortality um, in mothers is becoming an issue where African-American women are dying and their only desire is to give birth to a healthy child, a healthy baby. And so we're starting to see that. 
The other issue that I deal with quite a bit is that of the opioid epidemic and the number of people that we saw die of overdose. And so we took it upon our practice and started a medication-assisted treatment program. And that's actually how we became involved with telehealth. Because we do our telehealth, we utilize that platform for our medication-assisted treatment, and that allowed us to reach out to patients and far away from our practice. When COVID-19 came onto the scene, we quickly converted the telehealth platform for non-MAT patients. So all of our patients were on telehealth and fairly early before many other practices had it. So you pivoted, you had one set of patients that you were treating and you could use, deploy that in a very innovative way to include other people. We did. It literally took us 24 hours to convert the URL. And now we were taking care of people who were not medicated, assisted treatment patients who were not opioid addicted. And we were our, my oldest patient, 97 years old, she said, Dr. Smith, you should have done this a long time ago. I said, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so, But it was so exciting to see because so many people said the senior citizens won't do this. She loved it. As a matter of fact, she's had two more visits on telehealth. And so it, we found a opportunity and an option that people really didn't know about. And now that we've introduced it, they love it. I can see why they would love it. And I can see how it reaches people who who need to be safe and need to be away from the office until this thing has passed. My concern about that, and if I can share this with you, because we are reflecting on the same issues in Australia. My concern about it is that the art of doctoring that I am familiar with involves me being in the same room as you. It involves me looking you in the eye. It involves me touching you. It involves me sharing that human connection because our brains are hardwired to respond to that. And I can see in the post-COVID era that we still, we may still find ourselves doing some telehealth consultations in order to connect with the patient. But that essential connection that we form in that small office, that is so important and we can't We can't remove that for all people. I would say that the relationship that has already been developed with our patients. So our 97-year-old patient, I have held her hands many times. I have helped her get up and out of the stool off of the chairs many times. And I know what she has in her eyes. I've seen her eyes. And so when we went to telehealth, There was an immediate connection. I could see her eyes. She could see mine. She could see my face. There was literally no barrier there. Now, true, I could not hear her heart. I could not hear her lungs. But when she had the achingness of her joints and she held up her hands onto the screen and I could see her joints were inflamed. And so there's quite a bit. And one of the institutions, uh, Jefferson University, has a wonderful telemedicine course. And it is amazing how much information a physician can gather utilizing telemedicine if you know how to do it. I had a little baby three months old and mom was concerned with rash in the diaper area. And I was like, oh, no, I don't know if I want her to show the camera there. Mom quickly 
pointed to camera at his little rash. And I said, yes, that's what he has. And she was able to get close enough. I could see we were dealing with Canada. And so telehealth does offer quite a bit. This is a mom who had three young children at home and it would have been difficult for her to bring the baby out. And so I could actually do that exam right there in the home for a very simple problem. But mom trusted me and I trusted that she was taking care of her children appropriately. I can see how that helped you. But I can also see that that 97-year-old that you talked about, you needed to have seen her in that room. You needed to have held her hand. You needed, as you say, to have seen what was in her eyes. Because that is what medicine is about. I think we can agree on that. You're nodding furiously. It is about that human connection. That's what the medicine man, medicine person is all about. It's about a social role, a role that we play in order to bring compassion into somebody's life. Because sometimes there is nothing you can do for that person other than offer them compassion. And that is so true. The motto in our practice is the power of touch, physical, emotional, and spiritual. Because there are so many times when people come in And even now with coronavirus, I can just imagine that patient who is in the hospital and they're not allowed to have family or friend and they're there and life is being taken from them by corona. The very breath of their body is being removed. And here they are in isolation and alone. I can't tell you the feeling that I have knowing that compassion is what drives our human needs and our our human, who we are, humanity. And here we've taken that away at that very last instant in life. And so it's that compassion that we have developed with our patients. And and that is the connection that they are looking for. That is what the family doctor is so valuable for. Mm -hmm. We know we have kind of gone off into a cognitive discipline, but I would say we are a compassionately cognitive type of doctor, and that's what people are looking for. It is also very much what we are about here in Australia and indeed in the UK and and in Ireland where I trained. And that's why I went into family medicine. It's because I felt that I could bring myself enough into the role that I could use that compassion to make connection with somebody in a way that not only met their needs, but met my needs for why I'm doing what I do. And I guess from what you've told us of your career, it's probably the, the one thing that has kept you going through 30 years of sacrifice that you've made on your behalf and on behalf of your family. It is. It really is. And it's, it's so much of a driving force. My husband and I decided we were going to take one more step. So we actually did mission work. On March 12th, we traveled to Jamaica and went up into the hills of Negril and work with the friars up in that area to really work with a group of people who clearly did not have even the little bit that we have here in Rayford, they had less. And so that really was the driving spirit where we said, you know, we can do this everywhere. And so we're actually looking at doing a telehealth platform between our office and the hills of Jamaica, where patients, if they come in and if there's a medical student there or a team there, that we can still provide that telehealth care for those patients. And so we are, we're going to expand this. 
And I am a firm believer that this is what's going to make a difference. Telemedicine really will allow us to gain access into those communities where we just don't have access currently. But we do know we're going to go and visit with the folks in Jamaica because you're right. They need to see us and we need to be real live blood physicians and they need to have that trust that our patients in this community have had the opportunity to gain. Karen, there are a number of younger doctors, medical students who are going to be listening to us today. And I'm just wondering, have you got one piece of advice? I'm struggling to see how somebody could possibly emulate the passion, the commitment, the care that you are showing over so long in their career. What is the secret? What is your superpower and how will they recognize it? I would say to the medical students today, that the strength of our existence comes from our desire to love all people, regardless of who they are, where they are, and to look at a person, not at their face, but look within their heart. And if you can make that connection with their heart, you truly, not only do you have a patient, but you have a friend. And when you have a relationship with a patient and a friend all wrapped in one, That is one of the most gratifying way of having a medical practice, of being a physician. I just can't think of the gratification that I get with our patients because they're more than patients. They're our friends. Karen Smith, MD, you are frankly an inspiration. Be safe. Be well. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofheaddesign.com.